Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air again, and I hope all of you have had a good week. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. I also find it hard to believe that uh, come the start of this coming week, it will mark the last full week in August, or rather the last full week of August, I should say. Uh, Summer has uh, moved by very, very fast. But of course, I know a lot of that might also depend on where others may live, because uh, I know a lot of you who have been listening to my podcasts could be listening in different parts of the world where it might be a different season. So, you know, this last um, series we we uh, discussed had to do with um, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the U.S. Constitution, uh, being the book Signing Their Rights Away. Our time machine is going to take us into uh, the early part of the 19th century. And for those of you who were with me last year, when I first began uh, podcasting, many of you all were familiar with the book uh, Through the Perilous Fight, The Star-Spangled Banner, or rather The Burning of Washington, The Star-Spangled Banner, and The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation by Steve Vogel. Well, our time machine is going to take us back to... uh, the period of what is uh, the War of 1812, but except uh, the book we're going to be discussing isn't just focusing all about the War of 1812. The book that we're going to be discussing will talk about the conflicts that occurred in the years leading up to the War of 1812, because that is important to know After all, uh, war itself just doesn't happen overnight, but there has to be issues or causes from years past and causes that are more recent that lead up to the inevitable conflict. So what exactly are we going to be talking about with the War of 1812? Are we going to be talking about the Battle of Baltimore? which was discussed in Steve Vogel's Through the Perilous Fight. Um, No, uh, we will not uh, be discussing that, although it is important. But in this book, which is titled The War of 1812 in Wisconsin. Did you hear that, folks? Not just the War of 1812, but the War of 1812 in Wisconsin. Let me ask you all this. In 1812... Was Wisconsin admitted into the Union? The answer is no. Wisconsin won't be admitted into the Union until sometime after 1850, or more so by the late 1850s. That's when uh, Wisconsin um, gets admitted into uh, the Union. But Wisconsin will be the last of the five states that were carved out of the Northwest Territory to be admitted into the Union. So, uh, Who wrote this book, The War of 1812 in Wisconsin, The Battle for Prairie du Chin? Well, I can tell you that uh, uh, the lady who wrote this book is very well um, regarded in Wisconsin. She um, is a member of the Wisconsin Historical Society, and she just so happens to be a native of uh, Prairie du Chin. Her name is Mary Elise Antoine. So I'm going to uh, discuss with you all the prologue, or rather the introduction, to this book. 
but I will say this, um, the introduction to this book is one that um, is important. Any intro, I mean, any introduction to a book is important for you all, not just for you all, but for the readers to understand what it is that they're reading about. So here we begin with our in, with the introduction to the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine. Whenever Americans get asked about the War of 1812, their answers or responses are usually vague. On one hand, many Americans forget that America as a nation did fight a second war against England for independence shortly after June 18, 1812, being the day that President James Madison signed a declaration for going to war with England. For those of you who aren't uh, familiar with the War of 1812, it, the conflict um, didn't happen starting in 1812. This uh, conflict had been brewing for some time, and for those, for those of you who aren't familiar about this war, I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, why did America have to even fight a second war for independence? Didn't we get it right the first time 30-some years earlier um, after the British surrendered at Yorktown followed by the 1783 Treaty of Paris? Well, I'll get to 1783 here soon in terms of explaining, uh, going about explaining a brief timeline for how we get led up to uh, this conflict at, at uh, Prairie du Chien. But we must remember that even in the years leading up to the War of 1812, it is fair to say that uh, the nation is polarized. There are those who don't want to go to war with England, while at the same time they don't, uh, they don't approve of how the uh, British have uh, been treating our sailors and uh, harassing our ships on the high waters. But we as a nation don't even have... A solid um, army. We have a, a decent navy, but we don't have a very solid army. But that can also be attributed to um, the philosophy behind where standing armies um, stand in the eyes of those whom are fearful of the presence of a large standing army. And all this goes back to um, in the years after the Revolutionary War ended, most notably in the post-Revolutionary War, okay, we've defeated the mightiest empire in the world, we really don't need to have a standing army. Well, in times of peace, maybe not, but the presence of a military, regardless of whether it's in a time of peace or a time of war, is essential because you've got to defend your country, not just inland, but you have to defend it along the coast. You have to have people on guard. We can't assume anything. Now, I should say this, um, on the flip side, there are many Americans whom do have a good understanding about this forgotten war, especially when it comes to 1814, the year which the British burned the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Many of you all are wondering, why did the British burn Washington, D.C.? What did we do to them that made them so angry. 
Well, I'll just tell you this. The British didn't just decide one day to just burn our capital for the heck of it. No, this had been coming for quite some time since we had declared war on England. Washington, D.C. was a wilderness. Matter of fact, many people did not like the fact that Washington, D.C. was our nation's capital because it just did not have the grand splendor like Philadelphia had. It didn't have the same charm and ambience like Annapolis and Baltimore, Maryland did. And it sure as, it sure as heck didn't have the same ambience as Georgetown did. Nor did it have the same ambience as Alexandria, Virginia. So to think there were cities not far from Washington, D.C. that had more ambience, more, um, what do you call it, events going on, it's places like Georgetown to Annapolis, Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Alexandria, Virginia. Those places were where the politicians went because there seemed to be more to offer there than there was in Washington, D.C. So Washington, D.C. had pretty much been a sitting duck for a good period of time. But James Madison and his administration were very convinced that the British would not burn Washington because there really wasn't much there. Well, sadly, we underestimated the British. And the British retaliated, uh, long story short, because the year earlier in 1813, on the Canadian uh, front, uh, the majority of our forces were sent northward to invade Canada to get rid of the British who were um, north of the United States and Canada. The Americans truly believed that their Canadians, that the Canadians did not like being subjected to uh, British rule. At the same time, the British had interests that, uh, most notably along the Great Lakes, that um, entail both Canada and the United States. But it turns out that those living in Canada we're fine with being governed under British rule. And so we tried on multiple occasions to, um, to defeat the British in Canada, but every time it failed. But in the aftermath or, or the height of the Battle of um, Niagara, at the time the um, capital of um, Ontario, or let alone Canada, was um, York. Or rather, Ontario, before uh, the capital of Ontario became Toronto, uh, the capital was York. And the Americans were so, um, they were so fed up with um, the way they were being treated. They uh, broke a, what you call, rule by not fighting during the winter. And from what I had read, they decided to uh, burn the capital of York, leaving countless men, women, and children, or rather families, uh, homeless to the point where they simply did not have anywhere else to go in the midst of the winter. Well, being on the British side, I could see how this would have angered, um, angered those people in large part because, you know, the Americans have now broken a cardinal rule. The, the British could see this as like their version of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, okay? The Americans have hurt us. Now it's going to be our turn to um, unleash some um, surprises on them that, to where they may not recover as a country. 
And so the British did burn Washington in August of 1814. There had been multiple warnings um, about, about what was to come. And sadly, James Madison and his Secretary of War, John Armstrong, failed to adhere to the warnings to the point where once the inevitable was about to happen, people were fleeing left and right. Valuables had to be put away at the last minute. Dolly Madison and her servants went at the last minute, removed the portrait of George Washington, uh, the most famous one done by Gilbert Stuart of, um, and all, but it was a very, very chaotic scene to where um, Washington in a few short hours would get burned, but it was all because we were ignorant. We truly underestimated Britain's power, but we also truly were convinced that militia could put down a mighty empire. We learned the hard way, all right. But as for those Americans whom have a good understanding about this forgotten war, especially when it comes to 1814, yes, being the year British forces burned our nation's capital, to Francis Scott Key writing out America's national anthem while witnessing the Battle of Baltimore taking place over Fort McHenry. The Battle of Baltimore, folks, that was the rally cry. The British, um, in the aftermath of having burned Washington, missed a golden opportunity. What do you think they should have done? If they burned our nation's capital, wouldn't it be smart to go northward and start attacking other cities to catch those people off guard? Absolutely. The British felt that, okay, we've burned Washington. Um, the United States will, um, will surrender and pretty much return its, um, the, the nation itself will, uh, will reclaim itself as a subject to the mother country, being England. Well, as, as devastating as the uh, burning of Washington itself was, and, and in the midst of the burning of Washington, there were uh, cabinet changes made. John Armstrong resigned. Military leadership realignment took place to where um, Baltimore pretty much became, seen, became the city that was make or break to save the United States. Matter of fact, Baltimore had a, had a higher population than Washington, D.C. Baltimore also had, was um, more prevalent for commerce coming in and out. So Baltimore was where it all was where all the defenses lied. And so at the Battle of uh, Fort Mc at the Battle of Baltimore that took place over Fort McHenry, Francis Scott Key was aboard a um, British ship, uh, the HMS Tunnet, Tunnet, and he was a part of a delegation that um, that uh, worked to successfully in the end uh, help get some um, American prisoners of war freed through the uh, generous assistance of the um, prisoner of war agent uh, being Mr. John Stuart Skinner. But it was during this battle of Baltimore where um, Francis Scott Key saw the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, which gave proof through the night that when night turned to morning, 
and it was a foggy morning, but he could see high above Fort McHenry's structure, the American flag still standing. Because for Francis Scott Key, what worried him was that throughout the night was what would he wake up to the next morning? Would he wake up to a United States or would he have, be waking up to a country that no longer existed by means of surrendering to England, a country that we had defeated 30-some years earlier? Would we become a subject once again? So that's what most people who are familiar about this forgotten war are, uh, know a great deal about. But America's uh, forgotten war was one which didn't get confined to just a single front, meaning a single like region or area. The War of 1812 produced battles, raids, and skirmishes from the Atlantic Ocean, the Great Lakes, to Canada, as well as the Upper Mississippi River. For those Americans who know a great deal about this forgotten war, their information attained revolves around conflicts from the Atlantic Ocean, the Great Lakes, to Canada. The forgotten region behind this conflict, or rather war, took place along the upper Mississippi River. One thing I have to remind myself when I think of the Mississippi River is that it doesn't start in Mississippi. I thought that was the case at one time, but some years ago I was uh, told that the Mississippi River actually begins in Minnesota. Well, the Upper Mississippi Valley makes up part of the Northwest Territory, but its history is one that's very complex, considering hostility or origins between England and the United States date back before 1775, which was the year that shots heard round the world took place at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts on April the 19th of 1775. All right, we're going to start with um, a brief timeline of how we get eventually to the War of 1812, because remember, a war just doesn't happen overnight. There has to be other ensuing conflicts or struggles that lead to the inevitable. So we go to the year 1763. That year brings an end to the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. However, before the Seven Years' War began, the French controlled all of Quebec, Canada. Of course, we all do we all know of uh, which prominent city there is in Quebec? Well, I, when I think of, if I had to pick one prominent city in Quebec, it's Montreal. The, besides Quebec, Canada, that the French controlled, how about the Ohio Valley Territory? It's, you know, it's pretty something to ha have a um, control an entire province in Canada, being that of Quebec, and then have all of the Ohio Valley Territory in the United States. All of this uh, land that the French held in their possession enabled them to build, or I should say establish alliances with American Indian tribes along the western Great Lakes and upper Mississippi. Well, what exactly are the western Great Lakes? Well, when I think of the western Great Lakes, I think of um, Lake Michigan. I also think of uh, Lake Huron, 
and it is possible about Lake Superior. However, uh, we will find that um, that there was uh, one one or two particular uh, great lakes that the French um, did have their um, alliances um, built upon with the upper Mississippi uh, Valley. Nothing lasts forever, especially when it comes to war. It's one thing to go to war with another country, but at the same time, by going to war, you're not guaranteed that whatever is in your possession may still last with you, depending on who emerges victorious. So yes, nothing lasts forever, especially when it comes to war and getting defeated by a bitter enemy in England whom went about taking all of, the, all of France's territory west of the Appalachian Mountains, including Indian Alliance networks. You know, it's bad enough you lose the land, but it's also worse when you lose alliances with Indian tribes that you had built um, a vast network of friendship on between, most notably with uh, trade, for so many years. So think about it. It takes a war to not only lose your territory, but a war to lose everything you had built and established through means of another um, group of indigenous, indigenous peoples, being that of the uh, Native American tribes, not just so much in the United States, but most notably in the, um, around the western Great Lakes region and upper Mississippi. Well, we're going to forward now to 20 years later after 1763, being 1783. 1783 is a monumental year for America, as the Treaty of Paris is signed, marking an official end to the American Revolutionary War. You know, that is monumental. I mean, yes, it's amazing that we were able to defeat the mightiest empire in the world, and yet King George and perhaps a good number of men in Parliament to military leaders probably saw the you know Continental Army as nothing more but a bunch of peasants with pitchforks. Well, maybe there were a majority of soldiers who could have been best described as peasants with pitchforks. But at the same time, those peasants with the pitchforks were able to stand head to toe with the mightiest empire in the world and defeated them. Now that to me is a miracle unto itself. However, England still retains its presence west of the Appalachian Mountains with Indians not England retains her presence west of the Appalachian Mountains, where her trade networking alliances with Indians along the western Great Lakes to the upper Mississippi are so strong that even the lack of U.S. military presence and power alone cannot stop England from relinquishing her power within the Northwest Territory. So, in other words, we might have a military, but it's not strong enough to go into the Northwest Territory and say to England, hey, we need you all to leave. You know, there was a treaty that was just signed officially ending this war. 
So because this war is over with, you all need to go. We do not have the manpower. So that really does put us at a disadvantage. Uh, the Northwest Ordinance won't be issued for another four years until after 1783 being 1787, the same year that our Constitution is signed in Philadelphia. Basically, the Northwest Ordinance pretty much allowed for settlers to move west into what we now know as present-day Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and as far west as Wisconsin. And our forefathers agreed to outlaw slavery in, those, um, in what would be those five states. But, the, but people moving westward would be able to um, establish their own townships, establish their own educational system, or systems rather. They would be able to establish uh, their own churches, uh, worship freely without any um, concerns of uh, church and state infringements. This was, uh, you know, it, this would, it was going to be seen as a golden opportunity. However, the biggest conflict in the Northwest Territory, once, um, set, once uh, settlers who whom have had established themselves in the East, moving westward, what were they going to have to contend with? Indians, not just Indians, folks, but how about Indian tribes, whom are not going to even think once about giving up their alliances or networks with the British. Why, do, why wouldn't you think that the Indians on the, in, this, uh, in the Northwest Territory, as well as rather the upper Mississippi Valley, why do you think they would not want to give up their relations or their networks? Well, a lot of it has to do with trade. I mean, think about it. Both Indians and British, um, and the British forces, they are dependent upon one another for goods coming from opposite directions. The Northwest Territory is comprised of vast riches in regards to land and water, but somewhere in the future this territory will become home to states linked forever by bodies of water. The Great Lakes, folks, you know, there are, how many states are there, folks, in the United States that are surrounded by, by Great Lakes waters? Eight. Does anybody know those eight states? How about New York, which is home to uh, Lake Erie and Lake Ontario? Pennsylvania, Lake Erie. Ohio, Lake Erie. Michigan, home to Lake Huron, Lake Erie. Lake Michigan, Indiana, Lake Michigan, Illinois, Lake Michigan, Wisconsin, Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, Minnesota, Lake Superior. That's eight states, folks. Eight states right there, all connected by uh, the Great Lakes, which contain 20% of the world's fresh water. Author Mary Elise Antoine has placed a great deal of emphasis on three communities whose origins in the fur trade business, did you hear that folks, the fur trade business, started with France. You know, when, when I think of an animal that, um, that was known for its fur, 
that both uh, the Indians and the uh, Europeans traded heavily on, or most notably the Indians were able to um, give to the Europeans and the Europeans made hats out of them. How about beaver furs? You know, they took the pelt and they were able to um, work it out to where they came up, where the Europeans came up with some fancy ornate items like hats. The three communities are as uh, follows. They got some interesting names. Michilimackinac, located nearby the Straits of Mackinac, which are short waterways between Michigan's upper and lower peninsulas that connect lakes Michigan and Huron. And one day, in the distant future, Michilimackinac, given that it's a um, located nearby the Straits of Mackinac, would go about um, one day getting the lower and upper peninsulas of Michigan connected. In other words, the mainland to the upper peninsula through a bridge that is still in existence today called the Mackinac Bridge. How about the next uh, community was known as um, Labaye located on Lake Michigan's western side. Nearby is the Fox River, which enters into Green Bay, Wisconsin. Labaye served as the entrance to the Fox and Wisconsin River Waterway, being a major trade route. And lastly, Prairie du Chen, located on an open area of grassland just north of the entryway into the Wisconsin River. Why is Prairie du Chen? I mean, we know it's a prairie, but another word for prairie is an open area of grassland. Why is Prairie du Chen so essential, folks? Or rather, it's so vital based upon its uh, location. Because whomever controlled the prairie or rather the open grassland, also had full control over all territory currently held by thousands of American Indians. And who currently has all that territory right now, folks? Britain. Great Britain is the one that has control over this territory, which was bestowed upon them as a result of defeating the French. In the French and Indian War, a.k.a. Seven Years' War, the proclamation of 1763 pretty much forced France to give up everything it had. The Ohio Valley, the Upper Mississippi, the Western Great Lakes, all of that's now, all of that has been in the hands of Britain, or rather England, for quite some period of time. The three communities described above had a lot in common considering they were all French in character and culture, but yet were connected to England via the fur trade, which led to a good coexistence among Indian nations in Great Britain. Well, it's good to know that uh, the peace has been uh, preserved, that the peace has been maintained, but we also do have to wonder, will the peace itself last forever? We'd like to think peace can last forever, but in some parts of the world, we have learned that peace either doesn't exist or peace is so fragile that we're not guaranteed that the peace between two nations would still be around 
a year after a treaty was enacted or a year after an accord or, or after an agreement had been reached. By the early 1790s, France and England were caught up in conflict again where the young United States desperately sought neutrality. And George Washington, when he was president, went above and beyond to keep the United States out of a messy, messy conflict overseas involving France and England. It did work, but being neutral didn't last um, quite a long time because the United States became a victim on the high seas where most notably England engaged American ships with impressment activities. And what is impressment, folks? It has nothing to do with um, I'm impressed with what you know or I'm impressed with how you perform today. That's not what I'm getting at. Impressment is where you uh, subject someone from the opposite side against his or her own will to come to your side not just by coming to your side, but perhaps it could be for long-term purposes. In other words, England became so desperate for sailors. As a matter of fact, many of their own men defected and wanted to um, just either not be a part of the Navy or simply wanted to um, belong to another nation. So England became so desperate for ships, not just for ships, rather, but for sailors that they would... Um, that they would um, halt American ships on the high seas without any probable cause, force their way onto our ships, and take men hostage, only for these men to never be seen or heard from their families again. If issues along the high seas were bad enough, more problems arose inland along the upper Mississippi River due to American settlers moving westward into nearby Indian settlements where allegiances with Great Britain remained firm and strong. Think about this folks, settlers making their way into the Northwest Territory trying to start a new life in what we now know as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and eventually, and, and maybe not Wisconsin just yet, but it's getting there. But the biggest hurdle that these settlers have to face folks is not just the Indians alone, but the Indians and their allies being Great Britain. Yes, Indian tribes have alliances within their own um, within their own um, culture, but to have a European alliance on American territory in, Euro in Britain, yeah, that's even more worrisome for uh, settlers uh, coming westward, as well as for our young government. Shortly after America's war declaration took place, British forces captured an American fort at, at Michilimackinac, being one of the first battles in America's second war for independence. And not long after Michilimackinac's fall, would other forts fall into British Indian forces, such as Fort Dearborn and Fort Detroit. With three forts captured, William Clark, remember Lewis and Clark, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, leading that infamous uh, expedition that um, 
We have what we know is the Louisiana Territory, aka the Louisiana uh, Purchase, where we, um, where the United States territory was doubled. We didn't even have to go to war for that, which was um, amazing. But William Clark is the Missouri Territorial Governor. He knew that Prairie du Chien. He knew just how vital Prairie du Chien was. He knew that all that open grassland, that whomever controlled it, also controlled relations not only amongst, with the Indians inhabiting that area, but controlled all that territory. For William Clark, he knows that the territory here cannot fall into British Indian forces, now considering that we are at war, because if it does, how can we really say that there truly is a United States? Yes, we are the United States, but the problem is that we still have a foreign country on our soil. We have an enemy that is not that is hellbent on not wanting to leave. An enemy who has developed incredible ties to Indians whom whom don't have a problem. Uh, being um, having um, a relationship with a, a country 3,000 miles away versus wanting to have relations with people whom, whom came um, from, say, a century or two earlier only to have um, taken their ancestral lands and forced them perhaps to move westward. That's how complex things are, folks, between the Indians and uh, the Europeans. It has been a love-hate relationship ever since the Europeans first set foot on um, Native American soil, but just also into the New World. Matter of fact, many of the Indians often referred to the Europeans as invasive species, meaning that they weren't, not only were they not Native, they simply weren't welcome. They knew what Europeans were capable of doing, not just so much engaging in warfare, but Europeans had brought diseases, and that's what wiped out countless populations of Indian civilizations, not just in what we now know as the United States, but in Mexico, Central America, and South America. The three-day uh, siege in July 1814 for whom controlled Prairie du Chien began years before, but at the same time, the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chien by Mary Elise Antoine, reveals a story involving different cultures whom lived in the Northwest Territory and how control of this area would impact people's lives for future generations to come. Not just for the um, Indians whom lived in this territory, but how uh, people moving westward coming into what we know as Indian Territory, how both cultures, how their presences alone would impact future generations to come. Well, folks, um, let's fasten our seatbelts because uh, we're going to uh, be learning a lot of uh, unique stuff about the War of 1812 that perhaps many of, many of you whom already knew a great deal about this uh, conflict, or rather forgotten war, may not have um, known about prior to. 
Uh, I read this book um, last year, and I did not know anything about uh, the Battle for Prairie du Chen. I did not even know that there had been um, issues in the uh, Western Great Lakes because for a long time, when I learned stuff about the War of 1812, I was always convinced that, it, that the, um, that it, that the um, battles and the skirmishes, the conflicts, were, all took place in Canada, along the Atlantic coast, and yes, along the Great Lakes, but I did not know anything about the upper Mississippi Valley. So even I, myself, learned, learned several things that I didn't know before, and that's what I'm here to tell you to share with you all about this forgotten war and that and that what we now know as present day Wisconsin held the key to our nation's uh, national security in terms of whether or not we really would have a true United States or would we have a nation that was partially unified versus uh, territories west of us still under a different uh, country's uh, control. Well, I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next, and when I am on the air uh, next time, we will um, learn uh, the following to the War of 1812 in Wisconsin. We will learn about La Baie and Prairie du Chen, French origins and settlement that date from 1634 to 1800. I'm sure some of you all are wondering why share this now. Well, by telling you all this now, you all will get a better understanding of just how far back this conflict dates to. Remember, conflicts just don't happen overnight. So thank you again, for, as always, for listening. Uh, you all are uh, great listeners. And I look forward to a new um, podcast um, season, particularly with a subject that, uh, while most people aren't familiar with, and but on the flip side, there are many people who are, but this is all about expanding, about learning and expanding what we already know and, and taking the information that we will be learning and taking it to new, um, into a new direction. Thank you again, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all soon. Stay safe.